Want to stay connected to the Curious About Cannabis ecosystem? Download the Curious About Cannabis app, currently available for Android and coming soon for iOS. Hey everybody, this is Jason with Curious About Cannabis. If you're listening to this podcast, then I assume you like learning about cannabis science. Would you like to also get rewarded for learning about cannabis science, including doing things like listening to this podcast? Well, if so, then you're in luck. We just launched a new experimental program called the Curious About Cannabis NFT Game, and it's designed to do just that, reward players for learning about cannabis science and sharing that knowledge with others. And the game is really two games in one, and I want to take a moment to kind of describe it. On one level, the game consists of a series of challenges that players can complete to claim rewards in the form of digital collectibles called NFTs. These NFTs appear as digital trading cards and are all limited in their availability. Some of these NFTs feature secret rewards that are designed to help you on your journey to learn more about cannabis science. These challenges are broken up into three primary types. There are learning challenges, action challenges, and collection challenges. If you collect 100 NFTs or more, you get a free shot at our most difficult challenge that we've devised yet, and that's the Cannabis Science Master Competency Exam. This is a proctored exam, so that means it's supervised, and it is extremely challenging, and it's designed to assess a player's understanding of cannabis and cannabinoid science across a wide range of topics. Successful completion of this exam with a score of 80% or better awards that player our Cannabis Science Master Certification. But that's all just one side of the game. The Curious About Cannabis NFT game also connects to a physical game that we've put together called the Curious About Cannabis Card Game. This card game is a fun educational game that guides players through the science of cannabis throughout the entire product lifecycle, starting at the cannabis seed and ending all the way at the endocannabinoid system. You can unlock access to order the card game by collecting 60 Curious About Cannabis NFTs. And every card deck is uniquely representative of each player's NFT collection. That means that no two Curious About Cannabis card decks will be exactly alike. And once you have a card deck, you can keep racking up new NFTs to unlock new physical cards and expand the capabilities of the game deck. So, with that, if you're curious about cannabis like I am, start racking up those rewards today and join the Curious About Cannabis NFT game. It costs nothing to start the game, and uh, there are all sorts of free challenges. So if you're worried about this costing money, I've tried to come up with all sorts of ways that you can play without having to uh, spend a lot of money to do it. Um, so what are you waiting for? Go ahead and jump in. You can find information about it on the Curious About Cannabis app, currently available from the Google Play Store coming soon to iOS, or you can visit www.cannacards.io and you'll get direct information about it there. Or if nothing else, you can go to cacpodcast.com, the main website for the podcast, and you can find information about the NFT game there. I hope you like it. I look forward to seeing what the feedback is on this. And um, yeah, good luck, everybody. Stay curious and take it easy. Hi, I am Dr. Kevin Spellman. I'm a molecular biologist by academic training and a herbalist and 
um, explorer by life training. Curious about Cannabis Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Jason Wilson with the Curious About Cannabis Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. So today I'm delighted to be sitting down once again. Uh, the first time we sat down was at the very beginning of the podcast. So I'm uh, super stoked to be joining a talented molecular biologist, mentor, and friend, Dr. Kevin Spellman. Kevin, thanks so much for being willing to come back on the podcast. Hey, no worries, Jason. It's really great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. I always always love our chances to to get together and talk and and explore all of these these uh, fun nuances of cannabinoid science. Um, to it's always nice when I have someone come back on the show because I don't have to go into a bunch of background information and all that sort of stuff. So we can dive right in. Um, one of the things I, I have several things I wanted to really get into today, but one of the things kind of like big topics and we can spin out from there uh, that I wanted to explore that I think a lot of people are interested in that fits your expertise so perfectly, which is how how does cannabis fit with other medicinal plants? You know, because you have all of this like really great knowledge about not just cannabis, but just the medicinal plant toolbox, as we say. Um, as a whole. So that's something I really wanted to spend today kind of discussing and, and thinking about cannabis, you know, beyond just cannabis. And there's a lot of companies playing around with formulating with other herbs and stuff now. So um, I guess we'll kick it off with that. What are your thoughts on how cannabis kind of blends with other herbs? Well, so the, the fact that you use the word blend takes me to, but there's many ways we can look at this, right? But the fact that you use the yeah. word blend makes me think about, okay, how do we get it into a soft gel or how do we get it into a, uh, literally into a capsule or a, a tincture? And so that denotes for me that we need to be thinking about lipophilicity, right? So mm -hmm. there's that angle of blending and then there's also the angle of, so how do we enhance or reduce side effects or yeah. some of the adverse effects of, of THC? So there's two ways to, to think about it. Um, in thinking about blending literally as on a production scale, I think a lot of people miss this. And I know when uh, Jane Bothwell and I used to run the cannabis conference, what do we call that? Uh, Medical Cannabis Conference, I think we call it in Arcata, California. I was going to say, is that the one in Arcata? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I was introduced to a bunch of different tinctures with other herbs in it besides cannabis. Uh, down there back in, I don't know when it was, I don't know, five years ago or so, maybe more. And the first thing I noticed was there was all kinds of precipitate in these tinctures because <laughs> they yeah. weren't taking blending you know, into account. Like you can't blend lipophilic stuff with hydrophilic stuff unless you've got a few tricks up your sleeve. You can't do it, but you need to have some tricks up your sleeve. So um, that was one of the first places I saw it. When it comes to soft gels and putting cannabis in soft gels, we really need to be thinking about um, that's where we get into lipophilicity. You can always add beeswax to something to work as an emulsifier, 
but I'm not a huge fan of, of beeswax. And um, I've gone head to head with some people in the natural products industry who do this for, you know, regularly blending stuff and said, show me some data that's, that demonstrates that beeswax doesn't inhibit absorption. Because if you think mm. about it, just what it is, you know, it's not necessarily going to facilitate absorption. It's really, it's a wax, right? It's, it's coating right. stuff and blocking it literally. So, um, and I've, I've had somebody that I was working with send me like, I don't know, five papers and not one of them. <laughs> she was trying to back herself up, right? With, yeah. with data and not one of them had any indication. I was like, okay, so where's the data? Like, okay, great that you sent me showing this good emulsifier, but <laughs> right, there's a big difference between yeah, what's going to make a product like, and, mix and look nice. Bioavailability, yeah. and yeah, so that's interesting. And so, is that a that's a that's a common um, practice that people like to use? This is just my own ignorance that people like to use beeswax as an emulsifier. Yeah, be beeswax is super common in soft gels as an emulsifier because that allows you to get some hydrophilic constituents in mm -hmm. with some hydrophobic constituents without having them. Um, completely precipitated out. Gotcha. Yeah. And then on the the um, other side of, of like thinking about partnering cannabis with um, other natural product ingredients and, and the way we have to break that down, like you said, you've kind of got the assistive side and then kind of, you know, trying to reduce side effects and that sort of thing. Um, and even breaking those can be broken down into far more subtypes, yep. but thinking first on the kind of assistive level, cause I imagine that's what people are most interested in, um, right away. How do you begin to think about that? Because as we talked about in our first interview together, you know, all these activities, the endocannabinoid system, everything super complex, often very much oversimplified in the way people talk about it. And so if someone were to come to you and say, Dr. Spellman, help me formulate a product that's going to boost the uh, effects of cannabis. How do you approach that question? Well, it depends on which effect, which effect obviously they're wanting to boost. Yes, but, yeah. you know, one of the one of the things that I think is really super popular right now, because uh, adaptogens, even though even though mm -hmm. we've been using them for 30 years, now everybody's discovered adaptogens. Right. Um, yeah. So so that's that's kind of funny to me. But you know, TH, cannabis has been called an adaptogen, and I have to disagree. I don't see cannabis as an mm -hmm. adaptogen at all. Um, I do see that it can have some effects that are similar to some of the effects adaptogens have, but I don't really see it as an can adaptogen. You, can you define adaptogen in case anyone listening isn't familiar with that? Yes. Yeah, so there's a couple different aspects to adaptogen. Number one, they need to be non-toxic. So that's mm -hmm. that was the original part of the definition. Number two they tend to be amphoteric or even uh, biphasic is a word we could use. In other words, mm -hmm. uh, what's happened in the experimental models with adaptogens is a lot of times it comes down to the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis where mm -hmm. these well, also known as a stress axis, right? So that, uh, you know, when, when, the when the hypothalamus or when the higher brain centers perceive something going wrong, the message to the hypothalamus is, oh shit, and so the, yeah. the hypothalamus releases ACTH, uh, no, excuse me, CRF, that goes to the pituitary, that releases ACTH, that goes to the adrenal glands, and then you start dumping cortisol and or um, norepinephrine, epinephrine. And 
so this, for the adaptogen research, it's turned out that adapt, the good adaptogens can actually mitigate the effect of turning on the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal mm -hmm. axis. What, where the amphoteric part is, is if the cortisol levels are too high, it can be lowered. If the cortisol levels aren't mounting a response, it can be increased. And so people get really confused about this, especially pharmacologists, because to them, a good drug does one thing. It's unidirectional, right? Uh, which actually tends to not be true if you really dive in deep into the research, right? We, we have to think about physiological context. And this is yeah. something that's missed so often in pharmacology. And by physiological context, I mean, we have to have an understanding of what that physiology is currently going through, what the state of it is. Is right. it an alarm state? In other words, stress state? Is it um, an exhausted state? Drugs and herbs and cannabis will act differently depending on what that physiological context is. I think it's a, it's a huge missing piece in pharmacology right now. But adaptogens tend to address that. And it reminds me of uh, this concept of a protean agonist that I've seen come up lately in um, pharmacology research. Uh, it seems to be rearing its head more and more this idea of how it, it not exactly the same, but related to what you're saying, how a receptor has just previously been uh, Tweaked. stimulated isn't the right word, but interacted yeah. with. Yeah. yeah that that you know changes the way that another ligand is going to you know what effects that ligand is going to get um as it enters the picture um and so yeah this idea of like kind of what's that existing state at the time um yeah it can drive uh sometimes surprising um effects compared to to what you may expect very true i think that's an important point that you make receptors have memory yeah, they they yeah. know if they've been stimulated very recently, and they therefore, as you as you're pointing out, they may react differently, and so that comes to physiological context, right? Are are receptors upregulated or downregulated or overly stimulated because of stress, or uh, vice versa? So all of this can make a huge difference in how drugs slash phytochemicals slash nutraceuticals have an impact on us. And so back to the adaptogen piece, it's really about mm -hmm. being non-toxic and having that uh, effect of being able to, to be amphoteric, be able to go both ways, if you will. If, if yeah. for example, cortisol is low, you can increase it. And that's it's where the high. adaptability comes Ex from in the adaptogen Ex name. Exactly, exactly. They're coming off of that, uh, interestingly, um, there's a concept of allostasis, which I think fits in really well with, with resilience now, this term we're using in more modern mm -hmm. uh, last 10 years or so, and, uh, and adaptogens. Because this idea of allostasis, I think, is really key. And that is that uh, it translates as stability through change as opposed to homeostasis, which mm, is yeah. constancy, right? And so... If you really think about it, there's only a few systems that are truly allostatic. Uh, oxygen tension, uh, body temperature, and pH are truly um, allost uh, truly homeostatic. And mm -hmm. that they very, very, the range is very tight and they really don't change much. But all right, the other systems, right. immunologically, neuroplasticity, mood, uh, 
cardiovascular, they're all allostatic and we tend to miss that. So it's something that's really bugging yeah. the GB Williger's out of me about cannabis is people are always saying, well, it, you know, it, it helps us maintain homeostasis. Well, it balances. Yeah. And it's, and it's actually, if you look at cannabis in the way that things are made on demand, it's actually allostatic, not homeostatic, right? Because that's, yeah. you cha- your, your physiology changes due to uh, seasons, right? Or to right, right. Um, yes. feeding schedules or to right, any number of things, sleep schedules. Our physiology tends to shift, and thank God, because it makes us adaptable right. and resilient, right? So this yeah. whole homeostatic thing is really, uh, I think, overstated a bit. Well, yeah, and it relates to a concept that I've thought about even from studying ecology. Um, so in, you know, because that's like where my, my science beginnings were, and especially in like restoration ecology, and, you know, this idea of like, well, we need to return these ecosystems back to their you know, state that they were balanced in, you know, before we messed it up, which to some degree, that's true. But it overlooks this like huge issue with the fact that like these things are never stable, like that they're going through constant change and are constantly fluctuating. And those constant fluctuations sometimes give us an illusion that there is some balance that they're oscillating between that they perhaps should you know, be, you know, trying to reach. Um, and so it's, it's fascinating. And I, I'm glad you brought that up that, you know, in the human body as well, we have the sense that like, no, things should be humming at some like perfect state and you just need to keep at that state, you know, constantly. Um, and that's simply not the case. I, I mean, things are changing all the time, which is what makes working with medicine so darn complex. <laughs> Yeah, and and you know I'll add a statistic to that. If if you look at, um, it depends on who you read, but at least in the top ten, one of the top ten killers of our population in the United States and probably um, around the planet as well, but definitely the status for the United States is properly prescribed pharmaceutical drugs. Yeah, properly prescribed. So in other words, you know, somebody didn't accidentally take an overdose. This is properly prescribed. Yeah. Top 10 killers. And some 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 journals have it as number three uh, cause of death. So we really need to have a more refined model of pharmacology. And that really ties into understanding our physiology. And and I, I think we're just just starting to get there. Yeah, no, I agree. Um. That's a that's a creepy statistic, really, to think about um, when you think about what that's all um, compared to. And so, looping this this back around, so you originally said that you know some people claim that cannabis acts as an adaptogen, and certainly in the popular culture, that type of language is used. You know, feed your endocannabinoid system to find balance, and or, you know, try to find your balance with CBD and all these things. So um, beyond some of the obvious things we could talk about of what's wrong with statements like that. Um, what is it about cannabis activity um, that makes you feel strongly that it's uh, that it should not be classified as an adaptogen, um, at least in you know in that herbalist world that you know is kind of wanting to box it in there. Well, the the fact that THC has such a profound impact, adaptogens are usually much more subtle in mm-hmm. in their use. Yeah. Right. And THC has this very profound impact. So 
you know, if we wanted to start the conversation over, maybe we talk about hemp and but, and not necessarily, you know, sure, medical sure, cannabis. Yeah. But that that alone right there says to me, well, this is a pretty profound influence on neurochemistry. It's not subtle um, as most adaptogens are, and it, and it can be overpowering very quickly, um, right. which most adaptogens, I mean, that's one of the keys is non-toxicity, right? Um, so, and I would call, you know, uh, I'm going to piss people off on your program here, but I would call THC potentially toxic sometimes, right? It's, it's not, yeah. yeah, I'm totally there that nobody's ever died from a THC overdose due to respiratory failure, right? But uh, people have done really stupid shit after they've gotten super high. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, this idea of, uh, so in an advanced workshop I teach, we just kind of went through toxicology and, and stuff. And one of the points that I bring up is just because something doesn't kill you from a lethal overdose doesn't mean it does no damage in any context. Right. Um, and I think sometimes in our eagerness to get out of the old days of like really severe propaganda and everything, um, this statistic has been one that uh, the culture grabs onto really strongly. Well, no one has ever died from it. It's like, well, first of all, that's not true. Um, there, there are recorded fatalities, unfortunately, associated with cannabis use, but they're, you know, they're rare. Um, but then beyond that, um, yeah, thinking about uh, negative effects in general, um, I would agree with you in certain contexts and everything. I mean, just the, the way the anxiety effect is brought out, you know, that yeah. inhibition of GABA and, uh, you know, that alone, like there are cascades there that, um, you know, yeah, it's it's not pleasant for anyone to hear, but, you know, they could be considered kind of a neurotoxic kind of um event but then you start saying things like that and people are like oh no now you're talking about brain damage and all these things and it's like well i'm talking about brain functioning um i'm not saying things are necessarily like not reversible um or that they're permanent or anything but it you know these things can can get out of out of whack for sure yeah if i can digress a little bit here in terms of gaba yeah. inhibition um one of my first neuroscience courses this would have been in the 90s uh our professor pointed out that the Russians had developed a uh, GABA inhibitor and they would use it for interrogations. Ah, make people freak out. Yeah, exactly. People <laughs> would just get so anxious that, the, you know, that the, they would, the hope was they would spill their guts, right? But um, people actually died from GABA inhibition because you can, mm. the brain can get just so excitatory, right? That, that's, you know, glutamate is toxic at, at higher levels. And yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I never thought about uh, GABA being manipulated uh, for that purpose, but that makes perfect sense. Like, uh, oh, you think you've got a strong constitution? You're not nervous? <laughs> like, let's see what happens after this. Yeah. Um, well, well, the KG, well, the well, the CIA was working on uh, uh, acid to right. <laughs> to, yeah, LSD. They to, the Russians to were taking a slightly people. different approach. The Russians were taking a different approach. Exactly. <laughs> now, if you just give the GABA inhibitor about an hour and a half before the LSD, and then... <laughs> that would be pretty ugly. That would, yeah, you're getting some interesting forms of torture at that point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
um, but but yeah, I mean, this is this is good for people to know. I mean, certainly the examples that we're talking about are, are extremes, but yeah, um, yeah, it's important for people to realize like that that effect that people like so much about cannabis's anxiety relieving activity. And it usually comes from that glutamate, you know, inhibition and stuff. But a little more THC, and you get into a totally different world, and you start inhibiting GABA, you start disrupting neurotransmitter signaling in different ways, and keep that up repeatedly for you know time on end and yeah you won't die but you know you'll, you'll have notice a pretty changes unpleasant, that's right pretty unpleasant <laughs> experience and and with all the snips we've got in the ecs you know for some people that's a really low dose of thc that that induces yeah. that anxiety yeah and this is a total side note but um have you heard about these genetic tests for the endocannabinoid system so i'm test driving one right now Oh, um, and I have no idea like what the data is going to look like or anything. But um, one of these companies that that does them, I found them on LinkedIn, and I was like super fascinated just to know like what genes are they measuring, and you know how how do they correlate between genes and and things that have any sort of like clinical significance? Because that's always hard. Uh, so I reached out to them and and interviewed them for the podcast mm -hmm. some time ago, and I'm just now trying out these kits. But I have no idea what to expect. I'm very skeptical about that link between what you measure in the genes and and sort of the what to do with that information but i'm fascinated you know you're talking about snips and everything i'm fascinated by the development of these technologies to try to basically what i gather from these kits is that's what they find is are you sensitive or not is kind of the main yep. takeaway yeah um so Linus Pauling in 1967 wrote a very famous paper. Um, I'm not going to remember exactly the title right now, but he had the term orthomolecular in it. And mm. it, was, it was published in Science, uh, the journal Science. And he talked about the fact that there would be slight differences in the way we metabolize, with the way our enzymes uh, the, mm -hmm. and the enzyme kinetics, essentially, right? Right, this, right, right. This rate of transport forming or catalyzing something into something else. And so that a lot of times ties into what a lot of our nutrients do because a lot of them are cofactors. Yeah. So it took about five to 10 years for anybody to understand what he was talking about. But now we've really arrived at that place where we're looking at SNPs in particular proteins and enzymes, for, for instance, mm -hmm. and therefore that kinetics, the, that rate of change of one compound to another is either slower or faster. And so therefore, we really do have sensitivities or potentially worse, you know, just real yeah. ability to freak out easily. Yeah, yeah. And it's, 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 you know, it comes back to this, you know, kind of alluded to of where medicine is kind of arriving to with the development of these technologies and these understandings that um, I always get excited about this kind of blending of everything that's come before, you know, um, it, a lot of this has that in of one spirit to it, individualized medicine, which is very much in line with traditional herbal medicine, you know, of like trying to understand what someone's constitution is. Um, and I'm sure that's something you can speak to a lot because you're so well versed in like Ayurvedic medicine and, and um, Chinese medicine and stuff, which is a, a really big part of that, trying to understand what someone's yeah. kind of profile is before you dive into trying to understand how to how to treat them um and so it's 
it's a it's cool to like you said it's things that really we could have been moving on much sooner but it's nice to see that that <laughs> the value now is there that we're seeing all of these these things um developed and and on that note too like i had a chance to talk to uh dr russo recently about his uh hypermesis research and the uh genetic um uh, mutations that they identified in CHS patients. And, you know, that was fascinating to have a genetic test, you know, now in the works coming out for stuff like that. Um, so I assume we'll see more and more, you know, kind of genetic testing like this around the endocannabinoid system, the endocannabinoid dome and, um, and other areas to, um, to piece all that out. I just hope it remains financially accessible to people. I always get worried uh, when these tools roll out that uh, the prices get hiked up insurance companies don't want to play ball and uh and ends up making it hard for people to actually get access to yeah it, it's it's true and uh, yeah don't even get me started on our healthcare system like what healthcare <laughs> system right i know yeah yeah we're gonna go through two years of a pandemic without talking about health education okay uh, <laughs> or, or the fact that we really don't have a public health system <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. Public. What? Um, yeah, I'm with you there. Um, well, looping back from from this this nice uh, side trail that we've been on, coming back around to um, thinking about cannabis, you know, we've been talking about how it doesn't seem to act like an adaptogen um, going into herbs that that seem to complement it well let's take um because you said the perfect thing that i wanted you to say when i posed the original question which is what condition what effect are you talking about um because that's usually the first step that, that people miss it's like well there's a myriad of effects that you could be talking about here um so let's go to one of the uh two of the big ones that are interconnected which is pain and inflammation um so focusing on that from your experience uh what are I would say not even just medicinal plants, but also dietary elements, because um, that's all a part of this discussion um, that kind of can play well with cannabis to maximize those effects and, and possibly even um, um, also uh, reduce the chances of, of possible side effects. Well, the, the first thing I would point out, and, and it's it's cliche, but the first thing I'd point out is the heterodimers that uh, CB1 receptors mm -hmm. form with opioid receptors. And so that in itself, you, you know, there are herbs out there, for example, um, Corydalis uh, that, mm -hmm. that has tetrahydropalmitine in it, which binds the um, mu opioid, opioid receptor without, uh, without really causing any sort of addiction due to the signaling bias. But yeah, we that would be one of the first things I'd think about. And when I'm treating pain with cannabis, that's one of the things I always put in. Um, but then other, you know, other things, uh, certainly, you know, inflammation is always a part, of, not, well, not always, but often a part, especially in aging, it's often a part of pain. And right. so, you know, thinking about that, I mean, beta caryophylline has been a bit over um, exposed at this point, but, <laughs> yeah, you, you know, some of the, uh, some of the, um, alkalamides from plants like echinacea, from plants like mm -hmm. um, spilanthes, from plants like xanthoxylum, also known as prickly ash, or if a different species would be Szechuan pepper, 
All of those tend to be really good at binding CB2 as well. So you get that effect, which also, and I don't have, I don't have any research on this yet, but it's not a far stretch. You know, there's a CB2 isoform that is in the brain that looks like it has a real role in addiction and addictive behavior, right? Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that it's somewhat likely that the herbs I just mentioned potentially could be useful um, for addiction issues as well. I'm so glad you said that because that's immediately where my brain went when you were talking about the CB2 activity. Is I was like, well, yeah, what do you think about um, addiction substance use behaviors? Because I know that's um, like there's NIH money going into that, like trying yeah. to identify how to um, manipulate the endocannabinoid system to treat um, addiction and um, substance abuse and everything, um, which is um, very, very fascinating. And this highlights, you know, the role of CB2 receptors is so poorly understood. You know, like CB1. Cousin. Yeah, it really is. I mean, <laughs> CB1, you know, it, it makes me think about anandamide because I get so pissed off sometimes about anandamide because I'm like, okay, as the first endocannabinoid got discovered, it got this fancy name, great. And then 2AG sitting over here with no fancy name. It's more abundant with more potency in the brain than anandamide is, and it's forgotten. Um, but CB1 and CB2 receptors are like this too. CB1, you know, Howlett's receptor was this first you know, cannabinoid receptor discovered, very exciting, obviously exciting because it explained THC's effects, you know, to a large degree and everything. Whoop-de-doo. Then all this research, you know, just funnels into CB1, which is great. We need to understand what CB1 does. But then CB2 is over here and people are like, oh yeah, immune system, whatever. And then, and then we find out, oh, actually there's CB2 in the in neurons. Oh yeah, okay, well, that's interesting, but we're still, we'll still focus on CB1. Um, and then you start talking about like heterodimers and stuff and, and it, it it gets even more interesting. But so it, to this day, while there's some CB2 research that's been done and you've done some, um, there's just still not a lot known about what these receptors are contributing to. And they're interesting because they're substantially smaller as far as, you know, uh, the um, amino acid links and everything like these proteins are substantially smaller than CB1 receptors, which gives them interesting behaviors and stuff. And um, so I, I would love to understand that more. So I'm, I'm glad you're bringing this up and that, you know, they're, you know, you're talking about isoforms of CB2. So bringing in this concept of, um, you know, between CB1 and CB2 receptors that you can have these kind of slight uh, uh, variants in um where they are what they do in the exact way that they like take shape and everything um which i think on top of just cb2's you know the lack of understanding we have on it um even just that concept i think is poorly understood yeah i'm actually pretty excited about cb2 and, and addiction it seems like um i mean addiction is such a challenging and um life-ruining uh, family yeah. ruining uh, social yeah. issue that it'd be really nice to find a, a better alternative to, you know, treating addiction and people, you know, I, and the other thing is the stigma, right? People don't understand that addiction is a disease. So many people still think it's just weakness and it, it's, it's not that at all. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and speaking yeah. of that, uh, I read something recently that was really fascinating. The, the founder of a, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous apparently 
Um, I don't remember if it was, uh, I, I don't know which entheogen it was, and I'm going to use that term and not hallucinogen. Uh, yeah, thank you. He, he used an entheogen and uh, wanted to make it part of AA. And, and then the people around him were like, it'll never fly. <laughs> yeah. Was that but, a, do you remember which uh, entheogen? Was that Ibogaine? Um, no, I don't think it was, I don't think it was Ibogaine, um, which right, is another yeah. interesting interesting one, but I, I, I think it was either LSD or psilocybin, but I could be wrong about that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah, I mean, there's, there's lots of ways to go about treating addiction and we've been really ineffective. I mean, the, the, all those really expensive programs where you get shacked up for a month somewhere, right. um, yeah. they're the recidivism, like the recidivism is like their success rate is less than 2% oftentimes. It's like, yeah. What a what a good marketing model, right? <laughs> Your customers right. keep coming back, <laughs> and it's already marked up and super expensive, and, and judges require it. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah, it's it's a weird situation, and it makes you wonder with, especially with uh, psilocybin now, you know, kind of being more widely accepted and uh, and more entheogenic plants and and derived substances starting to be decriminalized. It makes you wonder how the addiction framework will be disrupted because um, there's been a lot of good work in uh, in entheogens, psychedelics, um, looking at that. And I, you know, I've uh, some of the studies that I've looked at, and the reason I said ibogo is because I'm familiar with several cases. Um, with I can't remember the researcher. Um, there was a lady working in uh, Central or South America doing a lot of great iboga work um, that lost track. I haven't followed it in a long time, but I remember some of the, I mean, we're talking like heroin addictions, methamphetamine addictions, yeah. like very serious addictions um, with like a crazy reduction in withdrawal symptoms. Uh, I mean, things that didn't physiologically make sense according to our models of dependency, of chemical dependency, um, which is just super exciting. Do you know the story of how ibocaine got, uh, ruled illegal in the United States? No, I'm not familiar. So there was a clinical study that was done. I think it was in the Northeastern United States. I think it was New York, but I could be wrong about where it was. And um, they had fantastic success and one patient died. And they found mm -hmm. some foil, which clearly had residues of heroin in it. And it got blamed on the ibogaine. Wow. And so that's how it became illegal. So even though they had, you know, all the other subjects had fantastic results, just one death. And, and there's a lot of talk behind it that the methadone uh, folks were pretty big in pushing that to, to yeah. Ill, you yeah. know, make uh, Iboga Tabernathy illegal. Yeah, I mean, it's threatening if you can have a, a, a plant or a substance, you know, come down the pipeline that you treat somebody a couple times and then they're, you know, pretty much reset and don't need, you know, constant, uh, different forms of intervention, drug interventions and things. Um, it, it's threatening on multiple levels to, you know, a lot of interests that are involved in, in drug treatment. It's, it's really sickening just the, the way that it's just like all of healthcare, you know, this is an extension of, of our smirks at the healthcare system already. But, um, when you get into that, uh, addiction and i would even say just mental health mental health care um and yeah. and all that it's yeah there's a lot of 
weird dynamics that that um, have prevented a lot of useful tools from uh, reaching the people that need it that could possibly free them from a lifetime of antipsychotic use or uh, like you're saying methadone like all sorts of of different things um, and who knows it's gonna be interesting seeing you know as research starts to kick up more and more um, into some of these things they can only deny things for so long yeah, when I was uh, at, at Thai Sophia Institute, now Maryland University of Integrative Health, they had a program in Baltimore uh, at Pennsylvania and North Street. So it was called Penn North, which is like the hardcore part of the city. And yeah. that's where a lot of the heroin addicts would go to uh, get auricular acupuncture, ear acupuncture. Mm. And, and it was really fascinating um, because the judges saw such a change that the judges would say, you can either go to jail or you can go to auricular acupuncture through this program. Oh, wow. And so I saw some really remarkable stuff, but I'll never forget being around that clinic and being in there for a while. One of the things I saw that I, I found just truly fascinating is after the auricular acupuncture they would have like a, a group session where everybody, and it was a group, it, it wasn't done one-on-one. -on -one. If you stayed in the auricular acupuncture program long enough, you started getting one-on-one -on -one acupuncture. But anyway, after the, the auricular acupuncture, the whole group would kind of have this soul session. They'd be talking yeah. and encouraging each other. And when I, sit, when I stood back and looked at that, I, I had to think to myself, that is as much of an effect as auricular acupuncture is. Not that I'm poo-pooing auricular acupuncture at all. I've seen it work really well. Mm -hmm. But just this, this you know, soul-releasing encouragement mm -hmm. that was happening with the fellow uh, fellows in there um, was really stunning. And when I mentioned to this, some of the acupuncturists that, you know, this is a big part of this, they, they did not like that very much. Um, <laughs> You're getting too close to saying placebo. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but people are people are scared of that. I don't think people should be scared of that, though. I don't think people should be scared of things having not not necessarily placebo, but you know, if it's the community environment, the shared hero's journey, people are going on together. Whatever yeah. it is, like yeah. you know, like that's fine. Like great you know um i i wouldn't get too caught up in you know if your healing modality doesn't work exactly the way that you hoped it did or doesn't connect to some metaphysical reality you hoped it did like focus on the results like look what's happening with with the people um and maybe don't get get so discouraged because i think about that with cannabis um you know i think there's a ton of uh and this is people listening please don't get mad at me don't send me the hateful emails, please. Because um, every time I talk about negative stuff, it's especially as my audience gets bigger, uh, the pushback gets worse. But, um, <laughs> you know, I think that a lot of effects associated with cannabis are placebo. Um, I think there's tons that are definitely, obviously, legitimate pharmacological, yeah. you know, activities and stuff that are happening. Absolutely. But when you start talking about some of these effects that people are talking about from like, incredibly low doses of cbd and not just cbd incredibly low doses of of diluted cbd distillate like i'm sorry i have a hard time like on multiple levels um 
you know, fully believing that that's a pharmacological response and not, you know, uh, more so of a placebo response. Um, and what I always point out to people is like, hey, did you realize the endocannabinoid system's involved in the pain placebo response? So have fun teasing that out. <laughs> I, I, mean, I mean, look, you know, the placebo, so, so first of all, knowing what a drug does or what an intervention does is all guesswork, in my opinion. Sure, we have some studies yeah. that say that this receptor or that enzyme is involved, but there's so much pharmacology that we don't yet understand. There's so much physiology that we don't yet understand that I think we're, it's a little bit like the drunk looking for his, his uh, keys in the dark, yeah, right? Yeah. He looks under the light. That's, that's all we have right now is under the light. What's not under the light is probably 98% of what's really going on. And so we can, we can entertain our intellect. We can, we can mentally masturbate by thinking we know what's going on in terms of what sites are involved, but there's a lot going on that, that just is impossible to know at this point. <clears throat> so I was, gonna, I was gonna rant on a little more about placebos if it's okay. Yeah, go for it. And I'll okay. get it all edited and figured out. Great, so, so when it comes to placebo, we've gotta remember that really what we have is the most advanced science there is. Placebo is not simple, yeah, right? No, not it's at all. Yeah. incredibly complex. And so for us to be able to believe in something and change our physiology, that's human evolution. That's the future. That's where drug development is going to go, is in our thoughts, in our belief systems, and possibly in electromagnetic fields as well. But that's another topic. <laughs> yeah. So, so um, you know... I got to embrace placebo is really cool pharmacology physiology. Yep. Then uh, Dustin Sulak, who I teach with a lot, mm -hmm. and I interviewed on the Spellman Report recently. Um, he he wrote a fantastic paper. Uh, there's the term artisanal cannabis in there uh, with Bonnie Goldstein and another author, um, and he talks about dosing. And so coming back to you know. A lot of these products have so little CBD in them that mm -hmm. it's hard for a scientist, a medical scientist like myself and, and you to really embrace the fact that 10 milligrams of CBD is going to make much of a difference, especially in sleep when small doses of CBD are known to be stimulating, right? Not right. necessarily sedating. Uh, but having said that, if you go back and you read that paper, Artisanal Cannabis um, and the Dosing, uh, like I said, I don't remember the title exactly, but Sulak, S-U-L-A-K is the author. And look at his dosing stuff. It's pretty fascinating because he gives a couple of examples. And I've heard him uh, when he's teaching, I've heard him tell this story a couple of times about uh, a kid that came in. He had an HPLC in his in his uh, clinic. Nice. Um, yeah. So a kid came in. With, this is early days, right? So you never knew what people were going to come in with and if they were using yeah. cannabis, what it really was. And so they analyzed, they were having results, right? And so they analyzed it and it was really, really low dose THCA. It wasn't CBD at all. It was THCA, mm -hmm. but it was working. And so Dr. Sulak looked at it and thought to himself, okay, well, if this is working, this is a ridiculous dose. I mean, it was something like mm -hmm. 0.1 milligrams or something, you know? Yeah. So, so he thought to himself, okay, well, let's see if it works. So he raised the dose. The kids started having seizures again. Mm. So he went back down to the dose that 
had been suggested, which was really not much of a dose, and the seizure stopped again. So wow. th- it comes back to not only SNPs, you know, and the ECS, but I also think it comes down to an area of science which is still, in my opinion, very nascent, and that is uh, epigenetics. In other mm-hmm. words, yeah. what genes are you turning off and turning off? turning on and off and, and how do we block that or, tr- or make that happen? And that's really lifestyle, right? Yeah, yeah. Epigenetics mm-hmm. is a huge, huge lifestyle piece. The way we're living affects how, we, how tightly that DNA coils, how loosely it unravels, if we're going to be able to unravel part of it, a particular gene or not. So I, th- I think there's a lot there. And dosing may de- be dependent on epigenetics in a really significant way that we really don't understand yet. Well, and this this actually relates to uh, what I was saying with um, Dr. Rousseau's recent research on CHS that, you know, they identified some uh, mutations on uh, some different enzymatic pathways. Um, uh, I can't remember which, um, like, isozymes they... <clears throat> looked at, but, you know, some of the cytochrome P450s and COMT and, and a couple others. And, um, and they were able to show that, um, you know, that there are, oh, this stuff we like knew, but just hadn't really like measured, you know, that there are people out there that their bodies are not metabolizing cannabinoids the same way. And they're getting much greater effect from much smaller doses than, um, would be typical. So even just that effect, you know, starts to, to highlight that. And then you start talking about these other dynamics that kind of play into that too, the lifestyle and the way that that, you know, drives the kind of genetic tone and, and, and the, you know, and what that kind of sets up, there is a lot. And going back to, you know, the stuff on the placebo that you're talking about, something that I've been fascinated with since I was in college, um, you know, and I actually, you know, I, my undergrad, my initial undergraduate work was in philosophy. And that's, you know, what my undergraduate degree was in before I started going into natural sciences. And what I focused on when I was doing my thesis work for philosophy was on uh, looking at sort of brain matter interactions, um, and specifically, like how how can thought influence physiological functioning and what implications does that have on moral responsibility was, was my main focus. Um, And so I've been thinking about this for a long time for this idea of like, you know, can thought manipulate, um, you know, a lot of, of different aspects of the body. And so in, in preparing for that thesis work, I dove into all sorts of rabbit holes looking at a placebo research uh, and other things. And, you know, you look at stories and I, I'm terrible with names and I apologize for people listening that like, maybe I'm a great teacher, but when it comes to like dropping book recommendations or author names, like I just suck at it and I don't remember anyone's name. But uh, there was a um, there was a doctor and you, you might even know the story, I'm sure, but a doctor that had a stroke and lost control over oh, her yeah. arm. And over time was able to retrain, you know, using neuroplasticity, biofeedback and other things was able to retrain her brain to be able to regain use of her arm again. Um, you look at like placebo work on the, the, the 
like classic knee surgery study where they just uh, took people that thought they needed knee surgery and just cut their knee open and then sealed it back up. And, you know, most of them, you know, came out feeling substantially better with all of these very objective, uh, you know, easy to measure markers for improvement and everything. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of evidence of the power of thought and belief. And it's not just placebo, but also the nocebo effect and negative outcomes. Yeah. Um, people that have negative attitudes about surgery outcomes and stuff tend to have a harder time with recovery. Um, at least in some of the research that's looked into that, it's, I, I agree with you. I think that ultimately that's where things are going to go. And I think that neuroimaging and biofeedback is going to be a huge part of that. Like when you can actually see what you're affecting with your thought, yeah. you know, that you can train yourself to do more interesting things. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a huge area of medicine that we still don't really know how to take advantage of. It's like, how wonderful would it be if you didn't have to give somebody anything exogenous and you could just train them to use the power that they have within their own body um, to fix what they can. I mean, that's, I mean, that's the dream, right? And yet placebo is a, is a dirty word in medicine. Yeah, exactly. And going back to this, that's why I say I'm like, I know that people get offended and I'm sure someone like got red in the face and ready to turn the podcast off when I said that, you know, a lot of effects from cannabis might be placebo, but um, I don't, I don't want that to be like a negative thing. I, I think that's a fascinating thing if that's the case. Um, and to your point too, um, you know, there are all of these elements going on that um, the super low doses, um, they may not be placebo. They could have pharmacological activity that's hard to make sense of based on what we know. And it can be a mixture of all of it. Um, yeah. And almost certainly it is. Um, and so hopefully if anyone has listened through that whole um, rambling, maybe they have calmed down a little bit and will listen <laughs> further. Uh, <laughs> so um, coming uh, back around, so we, we talked about pain and herbal synergies and stuff there. Um, and we've talked a little bit about um, about anxiety. Um, let's talk about metabolic disease, because I think that's an area that doesn't get a ton of attention in the kind of like cannabinoid space, but is highly relevant. And when I when I tell people, because so many people have heard of like endocannabinoid uh, deficiency, when I tell them like, I don't really like that term, I prefer to talk about endocannabinoid derangements, because... You can have deficiencies, but you can also have overactivity yeah. um, leading to other conditions. And so um, let's spin off and, and talk about that for just a, a little bit. Um, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but <clears throat> are you able to speak a little bit to, you know, kind of what I just mentioned? Like what happens when the endocannabinoid system is actually overactive and what are herbs and dietary elements and things that someone might want to consider if, you know, they're sort of not dealing with endocannabinoid deficiencies, but they might actually be dealing with you know, kind of overactivity or even just uh, disjointed activity that can lead to that kind of stuff. Yeah. So some, some of those adipokines, um, ghrelin, um, and some of the other ones do have do interface directly with the endocannabinoid system, and and so these the, these adipokines I'm talking about literally either drive hunger and appetite or 
drive a signal of satiation. Oh, I've had enough to eat. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, the endocannabinoid system is uh, very intimately connected with this. I remember um, I was at the University of North Carolina at the time going through my doctoral process and we had a guest lecture from, I forget which pharmaceutical company, but it was about Raminoband. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, so this FA inhibitor, right? And and yeah. she, she was talking like it was going to be the next, I mean, this is what pharmaceutical reps do, right? They're really marketing people. But she was talking to a room full of scientists about how it was going to be the next best thing. Um, and in fact, we know how that story ended. People in, in uh, trials ended up committing suicide, not everybody, but a few suicides. Yeah because it has such a profound effect. Think about it. Blocking, um, actually, no, it wasn't a FA inhibitor. It was a CB1 antagonist. CB1, That's what it yeah. was. Yeah, yeah, sorry about that. So think about that for a second. Like blocking a, blocking CB1, it, does that ever sound like, like, like what pharmacologist <laughs> came up with that? Did he know any physiology? I mean, uh, does that ever sound like a good idea to block CB1? Well, especially but, like it being like the most dominant G-protein coupled receptor in the brain. But yeah, let's just, let's just turn that off. It's fine. Yeah, it's exactly. <laughs> and oh, and we're going to have mood issues and suicide. Oh, huh. How did that happen? But, you know, you're driving appetite there. So um, that's where THCV comes in, right? Because at mm -hmm. one dose, it, it's uh, it's an antagonist and the higher doses, it's, uh, it's an agonist, right? So yeah. Uh, THCV, I think, can be super useful um, in terms of specifically in terms of um, uh, CB1 antagonism, but which, of course, reduces appetite. But there's yeah. there's lots of ways to do that. And, you know, some of the there's a bunch of stuff on the market um, that some of it, I think, is a lot of hot air and, and a way to uh, have people that are overweight think they can do something about it by not doing anything about it, by just, by just popping a pill. Right. right? Um, but yeah, there's, there's stuff out there that, that uh, stimulates metabolism and, mm -hmm. you know, that sort of thing. And what are some, um, you know, like when we start talking about trying to affect the pancreas, you know, and, and getting into insulin sensitivity and, and that sort of thing. Um, what are the sort of, I'm just going to start calling it the medicinal diet, but like, what's the sort of medicinal diet there that, that people should be thinking of uh, to kind of drive more beneficial activity and to tag along to that, how does cannabis influence that, um, you know, that pursuit? Because there's, there's a lot of interesting and somewhat conflicting data, especially when you look at the preclinical stuff around how cannabinoids influence um, insulin sensitivity and that sort of thing. And obviously there's the well-known effect that uh, has been publicized in, in kind of pop literature a lot about um, cannabis users tending, yeah, tending to have smaller waist sizes. Um, but yeah, can you comment on that at all and kind of that interplay? A, a little bit. So I ended up um, during my, during my process uh, of going through my, my, my studies uh, at the time, I didn't know it, but, actually worked on the endocannabinoid system because I was working yeah. on PPAR gamma. And so you're talking about insulin yep. sensitivity. One of the most effective ways to, to induce insulin sensitivity in somebody, in other words, reverse the insulin resistance is to literally uh, ag agonize, not antagonize, but agonize PPAR gamma. And so PPAR gamma, 
you, you know, so, so tying it into the endocannabinoid system, yeah, I think it's, I don't know if it's 2-AG or anandamide, but one of them goes through an enzyme and then ends up being a great ligand for PPAR gamma. So you're insulin sensitizing. But here's the really interesting thing. I've got an unpublished paper that I'd like to publish, but it's like too many years away. And just like, well, am I ever going to publish this? But we did a study on uh, PPAR gamma and basically looked at all the different plants, whether they're food plants or medicinal plants, mm -hmm. that could agonize, which, in other words, activate PPAR gamma, so therefore induce insulin uh, sensitivity. And it was stunning. And it was stunning because, you know, I've looked at other receptors before, and usually you have a, a moiety, a, a mm -hmm. molecular moiety that's typical for all the agonists, right? They, they go right. in and it'll bind. This was all over the map. And so really what came... Go ahead. I was just saying, that's, that's fascinating. Yes, yeah. So no, no chemical, like all kinds of chemical families, you know, compounds would be, would be binding to this receptor. But where it gets really interesting is when I really started thinking about it, it's about plants. It's about eating a, a, a plant-rich diet. It's about getting those mm -hmm. five servings of fruits and vegetables daily. And that's going to induce insulin sensitivity in people. And I, and I think we, although it's, that sounds like I've just cheapened the whole thing, the science, because now I'm talking about fruits and vegetables, but the fact of the matter is all those phytochemicals bind PPAR gamma. And so you get yeah. not only a insulin sensitizing effect, you get an anti-inflammatory effect as well through PPAR gamma. Yeah, that's, that's super fascinating because... Um... You're right that usually when you identify like a strong ligand for something and, and you start investigating, you usually start to notice, you know, some common patterns, even with cannabinoids, yeah. you know, with CB1s, you look at these tricyclic, you know, structures and stuff, and, and you can usually predict things that are going to interact with that uh, pretty strongly. Um, that, that's fascinating that all of these different compounds that you typically find in natural products in plants, um, that they they all are kind of tugging at this, and especially for anyone listening that doesn't know these these PPA these PPAR receptors are in the nucleus of your cells. So these are uh, unique receptors, and that they're not sitting on like cell walls and and helping your your cells you know kind of perceive the outside environment versus the inside environment. But this really gets down into your nucleus of your cell, where your DNA is being you know stored and and controlled and everything. Um, so it's. Uh, it's really fascinating and it's something that I'm, I'm trying to learn more about the, the PPARs because that's, you know, in general, I didn't really learn much about them until three or four years ago. Um, so it's still relatively new and kind of teasing out their role in uh, physiological functioning. But it's something that uh, anybody interested in the endocannabinoid system, the endocannabinoid dome, like you've got to learn about PPARs. It's such a, a big part. I think yeah, these days, like TRPV1 is, is getting popular. People kind of know, like, you know, that's a big part of the ECS and stuff. But the PPARs are um, another huge element that if you don't hear people talking about now with the ECS, it's going to be commonplace really, really soon that that's just considered part of it. And they're direct in the genome. I mean, they're right on the DNA. They're, they're transcription factors, essentially, right? So uh, they, they turn off genes, they turn on genes. And so th there's a pretty profound effect there, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, and then relating to the you know the stuff you're talking about the epigenetics and everything else, it 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 totally spins out. Um, 
So let's let's talk about um, managing side effects from cannabis, either CBD dominant or THC. Um, and okay, let's start with THC, and and then we'll we'll talk about CBD. But when you think about other medicinal plants and dietary elements to combine with cannabis so that someone maybe needs to interact with THC and get some therapeutic effect, but, um, you know, they're trying to, to absolutely mitigate those, those adverse events. And in this context, like we've mentioned before, we're going to call, you know, getting high as an adverse event, whether anyone listening agrees with that or not, just from like a medical context and thinking about this, um, we're going to keep that classified in there. So, um, yeah, how do you start to think about that? Well, well, first, let's just comment on uh, Dr. Ethan Russo's uh, comment, which I love. He's, he <laughs> says, if you're using medical, medical cannabis for a condition and you've gotten high, you have an, you're having an adverse event. Yeah. In other words, we, we don't need those doses. Like People are so used to using cannabis to get high. That's one dose. Medical use is usually a much lower dose, and so it's really, in a sense, it's microdosing compared to what people use to get high. Uh, yeah. But yeah. So w- what do we do? What do we use to uh, offset some of those things? Well, you know, one of the first things, and this is interesting as well, is acetylcholine. Right? Mm. Acetylcholine levels go down as you as you get high, as your CB1 uh, uh, receptors get very active, and What's interesting is speaking of microdosing is in those very low doses, you can see acetylcholine levels actually go up. Interesting. I didn't which is, that. yeah, biphasic. And so this, this biphasic mm. effect is so common in physiology, we, we tend to forget. One dose can do one thing, another dose can do exactly the opposite thing. But what, to the level where we're getting high, your acetylcholine levels are going down. So obviously, you know, Russo's talked about pinene, that's of interest, but you know, I think about Bacopa, honestly, mm. um, also known as Brahmi, uh, not to be confused with Centella asiatica, Bacopa moniera is also called Brahmi. They're both called Brahmi, but Bacopa has got a pretty strong acetylcholine push. Um, some people don't like Bacopa. At high doses, it's definitely like you're, you can tell your brain's on something because yeah. it's, uh, I find it uncomfortable, honestly. But, uh, and this is something you see, for example, with acetylcholine esterase inhibitors, is you will mm-hmm. see in some patients aggression, too much acetylcholine. I was going to say, is it kind of an irritability? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Too much acetylcholine is not necessarily a good thing. So, so that's, it's about finding your dose. As within all medicine, it's about finding your dose. But it's, Bacopa is a really nice way to offset some of the cognitive uh, challenges that we face with uh, high THC use. And I just want to add in here, you know, there are cases where, like in severe pain and cancer, where, in my opinion, you need to use enough THC that you're you're literally feeling it. In fact, in cancer, what I've seen is uh, people are just really wiped out because they're using super high doses. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When you start getting into that realm of things, I mean, yeah, even more layers of complexity because... Yeah. Uh, yeah, cancer is a really, really complicated thing. Um, and then what about <clears throat> when we talk about CBD? Um, I think one of the biggest concerns people tend to have are drug interactions with CBD. Um, do, obviously, depending on dose, super low doses, that's that's probably not much of a concern, but higher doses it can be. And given the example that you just mentioned 
of cancer patients, you know, there are people out there doing really substantial doses of, of CBD rich extracts and everything. So um, how does your mind shift when you start thinking about a CBD dominant, uh, you know, product versus a THC in terms of side effects and how to possibly mitigate that with some dietary or, or complementary herbs? So, so first, let's just comment on the HDI thing, the herb-drug interaction, which really should be called drug-herb interactions because the herbs are natural and they were part of our diet for millions of years, where the drugs are not necessarily natural and they're brand new to, uh, to us in terms of only being around you know, 100 years or less. Um, so yeah. the drug-herb interactions, you know, don't, uh, I can really get going on a rant here, but you know, a lot of that research, so with, with CBD, there is a potential, I think, in high doses to actually have herb-drug interactions. Um, in other words, inhibition of particular CYP enzymes, right? Mm -hmm. CYP450 enzymes. And I think that can be something that should be watched for. However, if you look at, there was a, a paper written by, I think it was clinicians, that commented that you know, even though we have this theoretical potential for herb-drug interactions, if we look close in terms of actual clinical work, nobody has actually come out and said, okay, this is an issue with this patient. Right, um, right. So that, that's particularly interesting to me. And so, you know, finishing this piece on, on uh, interactions, I feel like for most herbs that the in vitro work and the animal models that they're using are, they're using such high doses to get mm -hmm. an herb drug interaction to show that there's some sort of inhibition or stimulation of right. a particular SIP or a PGP or some of the other uh, sites that could have an effect on herb drug interactions, that it's just not real. It's just not, it's not physiological reality. It's not physiologically relevant when you start talking mm -hmm. about, in my opinion, doses above 10 micrograms per mil or 10 micromolar. I realize those aren't the same, but they're in the right. ballpark. So most of the herb drug interactions that herbs are being accused of having some sort of dangerous interaction, you know, causing your drugs to go up or down, really are based on theoretical research that is way out of the league of being physiologically relevant in terms of concentrations that your body could actually have in it. Of these yeah. of these molecules, so so that's always bugged me. And, and moreover, this is an experiment I've really wanted to try. I, I haven't done it because uh, it would take some uh, finessing. But I've always wanted to take one of these really bad herb drug interaction papers. For example, there was a, uh, a study done on Siberian ginseng, and they found herb drug interactions at a hundred micrograms per mil. <laughs> there is no way in hell you're going to even get a tenth of that, right? So and so they said this this is dangerous, right? And so I'd like to take a paper like Are that, injecting it directly in your veins. <laughs> exactly. So I'd like to take a paper like that, put in a pharmaceutical drug name, yeah. send it in, and I guarantee you it would get rejected immediately. Whereas this paper got mm. accepted by a journal. Right. In other words, this is a, a medical sociological uh, experiment on showing yeah. the bias that exists against herbal medicines because they're dangerous because of herb drug, herb, drug, herb drug interactions. And that only came up in the late 90s when pharma opened their eyes and said, wow, 13 billion dollars a year are going to natural products. 
these dietary supplements. We better do something about this because it's taken a piece of our pie. That's when all the herb drug interaction stuff came up. So um, in, end of rant there. But so what was the other question? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, the... the um... So it's kind of two things I want to note, and then I'll I'll come around there. Like one thing, you know, like epidiolex research is one of the things that gets pointed to a lot now about drug interactions. And so anybody kind of thinking about that, I wanted to point out that, um, you know, uh, first of all, I think uh, some of the drugs that some of those kids are taking was like valproic acid, and um, I can't remember uh, what a couple of the other ones are. Um, you know, and they did see some. Uh, what's the best way to say this? markers of liver stress um you know they they saw that the liver was starting to produce these compounds that generally a marker of stress and and theoretically you know having that happen over a long period of time could cause liver damage and, and things like that and and then also they saw some slight elevations of um some of these medications but i think the doses that they saw that was like between 10 and 20 milligrams per kilogram um in oh, kids wow. Okay. And, and so those you are know, big I don't doses. have a calculator in front of me, but for people listening, you know, the average body weight's like 65 kilograms or something. So, um, you know, you have to start multiplying these doses out and then you start thinking about what most average people, you know, kind of come across in, in average CBD products. Um, it's, it's extremely rare to ever be working and it'd be expensive, very expensive, um, to be taking doses regularly. Um, that high, you know, you're getting into grams of CPD, <clears throat> you know, at a time, basically, yeah. um, especially when you get to that 20 milligram per kilogram range. Um, so I just kind of wanted to make, make that note. Yeah, what, one of those, uh, I, I was analyzing some of that research recently, and what I found that really fascinated me, there's a particular, I don't remember which uh, seizure drug it was, but there's a particular drug that in itself was causing liver uh, mm -hmm. stress. Yeah. And with the CBD, the stress went away. Now, I know that's not every drug, but in that particular yeah. case, I was like, that's very interesting. That is so this, very interesting. So in this case, the CBD actually uh, attenuated the liver damage. Well, and that just shows like, uh, so one thing I like to talk about in my workshops and classes that I teach is this issue of repeatability. That like, you know, these effects, you've got to be very careful when you see a study and then start to say that okay that's the way it is because you know also when we talk about epidiolex you know we're talking about a very specific formulation with these you know relatively you know stressful drugs that kids are on some of these like really powerful anti-epileptics for dravets and things um and you know, so there's a lot of dynamics there that are going on, a lot of variables um, just in that patient population. Um, and then you start thinking about um, other patient populations and other drug interactions and everything. And there's still so much to to tease out. And then Epidiolex being a, like a more CBD isolate, you know, based product too. It also, there's all of these things you have to wonder about how co-administration with all of the other phytochemistry you know, that's in the plant, how does that play into that um, to alter those effects? And, um, or, you know, there's some, some studies that have tried to poke at that, but um, there's still a lot of work to be done to kind of compare the uh, pharmacodynamics, even just on basic level, between isolated CBD and kind of broad spectrum extracts or whatever. 
Um, but that's something I've always thought about too, is, you know, just that alone, you know, how does that influence things? Um, and so I can't say I'm surprised to hear that there's a study out there showing an opposite effect from this study, you know, that uh, a lot of people tend to point to when, when trying to, you know, point to the potential risk. And I don't want to downplay the risks either. If someone's out there downing grams of CBD a day, then like, absolutely. <laughs> like, yeah. um, that's a problem. Um, but, uh, yeah. And so coming back around to the, the main question that I had was, you know, if that's something that someone's concerned about, um, and there, there's some other, that's so hard to tease out with research, you know, there are other adverse effects listed with CBD, but once again, it often more relates to the co-administered drugs than CBD itself. But, um, you know, things like lethargy and gastrointestinal distress and stuff and stuff like that. So, um, I guess if, if people are wanting to, um, try to ensure that they're not having to worry about, about those risks, you know, is dosing really the main thing that they need to be worried about? Or is there anything else that they can do just in their, uh, like, are there dietary elements that might exacerbate that problem? Yeah. So, so number one, I say, yeah, dosing is important, but number two, equally as important is if not more is what else is going in. Yeah. So other drugs, other, other foods, right? So, uh, one of the things I'd be thinking about and potentially herbs to counteract that. I mean, one right. of the first things I think about is silymarin or milk thistle, mm. right? The, the flat flavolignans from they're isolated from, uh, milk thistle are called silymarin and they're, they're literally injected in Germany. Um, they've got them in injectable forms, but here we don't, here we don't do that, unfortunately. Um, but they can, uh, they can really, they, actually, there's an old story about um, Amanita mushroom poisoning um, by a whole family in the United States. And the doc was frantic. He was trying to figure out what to do because there's, there's nothing you can do for Amanita yeah, poisoning, yeah. right? And so he got, in, he got into the literature and he had overnighted uh, Silymar injections. And a couple of, I don't think everybody lived, but a couple of people actually lived from this once they, once they got their injections. Um, wow. so that's, that's interesting in itself, but I think silymarin potentially there's other herbs, uh, clipta alba, uh, which actually grows in the United States, but most people don't know it's, uh, the, the Latinos, the Southern United States probably know it's, uh, medicinal, but most of us, uh, white settlers, uh, didn't really use it, but it's really big in India. Um, uh, it's mm. got some very significant protective effects. Uh, Cisandra in, in Chinese medicine, right? There's, there's lots of hepatoprotectants that might be of use in protecting our, ourselves. Um, and then, you know, I hate to say, sound like your grandmother, but, you know, phytochemistry, fruits and vegetables are really what our systems have evolved with fruits and vegetables and with phytochemistry in a way that um, is really profound. I mean, we've got receptors that match up to a lot of these compounds in not just cannabis, but a lot of the compounds mm -hmm. in other plants. So we really need to be thinking about what are we taking in and how much of it is evolutionarily familiar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, and I think, you know, that's one thing that I love about talking about cannabinoid science is often um, you end up getting lost in the weeds just to come back to we need to eat fruits and vegetables and move around more. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's true. Discovering the why from a lot of that, but 
Um, but no, that's that's fascinating. And this is why I wanted to stop, talk to you about all of this, because you always end up bringing up herbs that, you know, you don't, uh, you know, there are like blog posts out there that that try to like list, you know, um, herbs to use with cannabis and everything. But they're all like regurgitation of the same thing over and over and over again. Um, so I always love talking to you about it because you bring up herbs that uh, w ones that I would have never thought about and some that I've never even um, uh, researched before. The milk thistle thing, I think I've heard that a long time ago, forgot about that story. Um, that is truly fascinating because, I mean, it's something that's not super well known. But yeah, when you consume the wrong mushroom and your liver's on its way to death, um, there's very little you can do to interrupt that process. Um, they've tried all sorts of things um to to try to help and and it's it's very very hard so it's extremely remarkable um that that's something you know uh as um i say simple but it's really not simple but something as simple as that um can can be life-saving in that context and as we start to to wrap up here i know i've, I've talked your ear off for a while now um but one thing i wanted to to make sure to spend some time on talking as we exit out here and we're we're kind of talking about um like negative effects and and things like that you know we've talked about potential adverse effects of thc and cbd and everything what are your thoughts on terpenes on you know i, I bring this up for multiple reasons um one i've i have talked with producers that make very uh high terpene extracts that um, have been a little defensive if I've brought up that like consuming high doses of terpenes could be problematic. Um, and part of that is just me speculating. Like, I don't actually know. I just know that when it comes to things that I'm familiar with, as far as um, environmental standards, OSHA standards, other things like that, there are requirements on exposure levels to um, volatile organic compounds, of which terpenes end up fitting into that group um and so that's where i kind of come from with it so i wanted to try to pick your brain on that before we sign off um are terpenes an area of risk that people should be paying attention to uh, so let me just say that terpene in, in herbal medicine um terpene slash essential oils are the closest mm -hmm. thing we have to pharmaceuticals in herbal medicine and i say that yeah, because yeah. they're incredibly powerful and potent can be very incredibly beneficial in the right dose for a key, um, but they are also so potent and so powerful that they can potentially be uh, very toxic to us. So uh, my feeling is that people, there's this love affair going on with terpenes. It seems like it's finally starting to fade, thank God. Um, but- No, it's moving to flavonoids, don't worry. Yeah, <laughs> good. <laughs> I love yeah. flavonoids. Um, yeah. But my, my feeling is that we, are dealing with something that's potentially, we don't understand how potentially toxic terpenes can be. Uh, and, and so I'd like to see people take a, a step back and say, okay, what's the, what's the benefit risk ratio here? And don't get me wrong, they're incredibly useful and I use them. Um, I formulate with them all the time mm -hmm. for companies. But um, you know, some of these dabs that are 30% terpenes, uh, mm -hmm. let's talk about that for a second because Terpenes can literally be used as solvents. For example, limonene yeah. is often used as a solvent, right? Pinene is often used as a solvent. Well, think about inhaling a solvent into your brain 
at that kind of concentration at 30%. How long do you think those neural membranes last before they start to break down from, from just being yeah. pounded by, by terps? Um, well, you know, it's like, um, it, it, I know it's not the same, but it reminds me of, uh, you know, like people huffing gasoline or something. Um, it, it's volatile compounds. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, I know it's not the same, and I'm sure people are sitting there once again. There's people like probably destroying their uh, their phones or driving off the road listening to me talk about this. But, um, I'm not saying that inhaling terpenes is the same as huffing gasoline, but there is a dynamic there. <laughs> there is a dynamic that overlaps, which is this: what you're talking about of the behavior of these compounds to act as solvents. And the fact that you have all of these membranes in your body, in your lungs, or, you know, in your brain, you know, all in the insides of every organ you have um, that are trying to protect those things from just like your skin protects, you know, those things, your blood vessels and everything from exposure to things that uh, could be problematic. And if you run solvents along these membranes, they will break down. They will um, break and down. Then, and then you get exposure to other things that could be problematic, um, even if the terpenes directly aren't. I mean, to me, that that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. But just because yeah. it makes sense, like, who knows? But, uh, but yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, they're, they're a great medicine. But here's the thing. Dose, the, the most important thing about using medicine is, number one, dose. Number two, dose. Number three, dose. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and even even in established mainstream conventional medicine, we still don't understand dose. They use the same dose for a female of, you know, a hundred pounds as often a man that's got, you know, that weighs 200 pounds. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, It just doesn't make any sense at all. And and this is one of the things that I think pharmacogenomics is, is gonna bring to us is being able to, with the pinprick, this, this, the, the um, instrument already exists. We're just not using it yet that much in clinical medicine. But with the pinprick, you can see if you're a slow metabolizer or a fast metabolizer in terms of mm-hmm. uh, drugs and exogenous agents. So I, I think that's going to be really key because there are people that are, you know, back to that stat, you know, properly prescribed yeah. pharmaceuticals kill, you know, in the top 10 in the United States. That's... Yep. What more can you say? Dose, yeah. dose, dose. It's important. Yeah, the dose makes the poison. The dose <laughs> makes the poison. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, I, I hope people listening uh, take that into consideration because I've literally run into, you know, products that are like 50% terpenes and that makes me nervous. And then one reason why it's come up is in my head now, because we've talked about this, you know, years ago, wanting to like write papers and stuff about this, but um you know i was thinking about uh the kind of rise in popularity of uh sauce and diamonds um you know these products diamonds being these crystalline products uh, it's usually you know um crystalline thca that is then uh put into a an essential oil soup basically um and so you kind of have people kind of mixing these little bits of crystalline cannabinoids into these essential oil soups and then dabbing those. Um, and for a while I was like, okay, the high concentration terpene stuff, it kind of died down, but then it's really come back with these products. 
And so, and of course, people love them because they taste really strongly and everything, and have really strong smells and and whatnot. But um, that's you know really had me rethinking again. And then you know, there's at least one study that's shown that um, you know if you burn these things at high temperatures, you know, they transform to benzene and and other things um, be problematic too. So um, I appreciate you brought that up about the uh, you know just the membrane um, you know kind of. Uh, uh, permeability dissolution kind of uh, situation and that's one that in thinking about this I, ha I hadn't thought of um so that's that's good to know and just with all of this with cbd thc there's a common theme here um which it's funny these conversations are always themes that come about organically but this is one that seems throughout this conversation that keeps coming up the importance of dose and that you may need a lot less than you think um uh, both to to get a cheap effect, but also to um, to try to stay safe, um, and so I think that's a really valuable point. Um, so to start to wrap things up here, I wanted to make sure you mentioned it earlier, but I wanted to make sure to bring attention to it um, because this was not going on the last time we spoke, which is you have your own uh, podcast audio uh, review. Um, and I wanted to, you know, right before we sign off here, I wanted to give you a chance to let people know, especially for clinicians and nurses and herbalists and stuff that may be listening to Curious About Cannabis, um, let people know about uh, what you're working on now as far as uh, the Spellman Report and, and anything else um, that you want to share. I want to make sure that we, we definitely plug that. And um, thanks so much for coming on again and rambling with me for, I know we've gone well over an hour, hour and a half or so now, but um, it's been fun as usual. Yeah, it's, al it's always great to see you. Yeah, so quickly, the Spellman Report, Phytopharmacology Review, is my way of really being able to help the educational evolution in medicinal plants. So uh, cannabis is in there. I've interviewed Russo and Hergen Rather and... Gerdeman and Sulak and Goldstein, but also a lot of it is just medicinal plants in general. Yeah. Um, and, and it's really targeted towards a clinician. So that, that's kind of the goal of it is to provide, clinicians are too busy to go through the research, I do it for you. And I tell you what's new and what's, what's happening. And I, I'll usually pick a topic of the day and then always have, uh, in, do some education there. Um, the one of the recent ones I did with Bonnie Goldstein, I, I just really spent some time talking about seizures and how to really handle that. And for example, mm. some of the side effects you mentioned. Um, and then we always have an interview, a person of influence that that's out there doing it, either a scientist or a clinician. Yeah, no, it's great. I was so happy to see that you took that on because. You know, I knew just from our conversations and everything, what you have to offer in that arena. And then our, you know, like I said, you were like my fourth interview or something. And that interview went so well. Um, and so when I saw that you were pursuing, you know, uh, you know, basically a podcast designed to distill research and, and share it with clinicians and everything, I was like, oh, man, that's so perfect. Um, well, just, just so you know, I, I had been working on it for two years before... I was willing to actually launch it. Um, yeah. The person, the the audio engineer I was working with was like, Kevin, we've got enough. And I'm like, no, I know how busy I am. We need to be six months ahead. We've got to be yes. six months ahead. So it took me two years to get six months of material. And so now I'm, now I'm rolling. So when, when we started that interview, I had been working on that for, I think a year already or maybe more. Wow. 
That's cool. Well, that's, you know, it's something I definitely uh, really appreciate about you is your passion to try to share and get knowledge out and to try to drive the conversation around how to utilize medicinal plants in the best possible way, you know, to drive that conversation into critical directions while also, you know, like you talked about today, recognizing, you know, there's a ton we don't know and trying to strike that balance between, you know, mechanisms of action and clinical outcomes and trying to make sense of all of this and all of these nuances around the research that you understand so well about like the history um, of how medicinal plant research has kind of played out and the politics that have played into that and how you have to really be careful. You know, you have to read these articles very critically um, yeah. to understand the full context. So uh, thank you for contributing um, to all of that and, and, um, and tagging along with that. Thanks so much for being willing to contribute to Curious About Cannabis as part of that mission to share education. I really appreciate it and uh, stoked to have you on board to help us uh, teach some workshops later and everything. Um, I, you know, finding someone like yourself that shares that passion like I do to have those conversations is, is super awesome. So thanks for doing that. And um, I don't remember if we mentioned it, but what's the website for, uh, oh, for the Spellman uh, Report? The SpellmanReport.com. Uh, Sweet, nice wait, and easy. Wait, I, I, actually, I better, I better check, check it real quick. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's SpellmanReport.com. <laughs> Perfect. I'll just close by saying um, in terms of science, Subjective certainty is dangerous. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, that's yes. There's a lot of that's a lot of great uh, stuff packaged into that statement. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very, very, very dangerous uh, indeed. Um, well, yeah. Thanks so much, and and everyone listening, go check out um, the Spelman Report. You know, it is it is designed for clinicians, so I don't want to emphasize that. Um, in case people like dive in and are like, oh my gosh, this is some complex stuff. Um, yes, it is. And it's meant to be that way. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, check that out. And Kevin, keep up the great work uh, that you're doing. I know you're a busy man, always doing a million different things, helping companies all over the place, uh, formulate better products and do research and, and all this sort of stuff. So thanks so much for taking the time and, and uh, being able to hang out with me a little bit today. And yeah, just keep it up. It's a pleasure, Jason. It's always fun hanging out. I, I love our conversations. It's, it's easy. It's, yeah. it's effortless. All right, everybody. Well, I think you probably know where to find Curious About Cannabis at this point, but um, you know, look for us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube. Um, oh, some other announcements. We have an app now. Um, if you're on oh, Android, awesome. it'll, be, it'll be coming to iOS soon, but we have a Curious About Cannabis app. Uh, it's kind of a centralized place where you can access the podcast, um, our workshops and courses, as well as we have a research feed from PubMed on there. So any new literature that at least comes through PubMed um, automatically is, is showing up on the, um, the app and stuff too. So if you want to stay connected to the Curious About Cannabis ecosystem and, and check out everything we have going on, uh, you can download the app. Um, or you can check us out at cacpodcast.com as usual. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Stay curious and take it easy. Bye-bye. If 
you want to learn more about cannabis, check out the Curious About Cannabis book on Amazon.com and other major online book retailers. 